You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information Hi everyone. Thanks for coming back to hear part two of the true story of the Emperor of the Sahara. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, I strongly encourage you to do so because it'll place today's story in a better context. Now, as a brief refresher, Frenchman Jacques Labadie had inherited an incredible fortune from his father's sugar empire, and he had become increasingly frustrated with France's rules and regulations. Now, his solution was to establish an empire of his own. So he purchased a ship, hired a crew, and in June of 1903, he set out to claim a piece of the Western Saharan coastline as his own. But his newly founded empire quickly collapsed after five of his men were kidnapped. After making a financial deal to get the men back, Labaudi simply abandoned them. So the French Navy had no choice but to send in a cruiser to rescue the men. Back in France, Labaudi faced both financial lawsuits and public ridicule, but he refused to give up on his quest for an empire of his own. Which leads us into the conclusion of the Emperor of the Sahara. Since Labadi was unable to simply conquer and claim an empire of his own, he concluded that if he could somehow obtain an official title from an established government, he then would be able to use that to his advantage in establishing his own country. In mid-1904, he entered into negotiations to loan the Sultan of Morocco $2 million. That's over $56 million today, and it was to be paid back at an interest rate of 7%. In exchange, Lobaudi be granted the title of King of the Oasis of Chakima. But his negotiations dragged Lobaudi couldn't keep his trap shut, and he proceeded to insult the Muslim religion. As you could probably guess, the deal soon fell apart. It wasn't long before he came up with a better idea. Observing that the Prince of Monaco had worldwide recognition while ruling over a tiny country, Lobaudi wished the same for himself. In July 1904, he approached the United States with a proposal to purchase as many of the Philippine islands as they'd be willing to sell that was provided that they granted him full sovereignty over them. The United States did not take the bait. Then, in August, he purchased an extravagant home in Brussels to be used as the, quote, European Embassy of the Empire Sahara in Brussels. 
Labadi also sent instructions to his associates back in France to sell all of his Parisian properties. A few weeks later, he found the ideal location for his new country. That was the Adriatic port city of Del Signo in Montenegro, which is now Ulsinge. He arranged a meeting with Prince Nicholas I to negotiate a purchase price, but the prince was unwilling to sell. Unable to buy the entire city outright from the prince, Lebaudi attempted to do so piecemeal, but this just caused the real estate prices to skyrocket. So he was forced to abandon his latest scheme. While passing south through Durazzo, which is now Doris in Albania, police arrested Lebaudi as he sought to hire a steamship to take him to the Greek island of Corfu. Noting that he was loaded with money while attempting to leave the country, Officials mistook Lebaudi for a bank clerk who had absconded with a large sum of money. In spite of his protests, Lebaudi was held in prison for three days. In June 1905, Lebaudi threatened to kill his wife, so she filed a complaint with authorities in Trieste, Austria-Hungary, which is today part of northern Italy. He was summoned to appear in court, but he somehow managed to slip away. Leaving nearly all his possessions behind, he fled 450 miles, or 725 kilometers, northeast by buggy to Gorlica, which is in southern Poland today, where he was recaptured. He was hauled back to Trieste, and Labadi was able to convince authorities that he was sane, and he was ultimately released. Meanwhile, things continued to worsen for Labadi back home. On July 24, 1905, a Paris court ruled that he must pay a stockbroker $15,000 for unpaid fees. That's about $423,000 today. You see, the judge did not buy his lawyer's claim, quote, that it has no legal jurisdiction in this matter. My client's legal residence are Troja in the Empire of the Sahara and Brussels, where the European Embassy of Sahara's Empire is located, end of quote. In November, he suffered another major loss in court. You see, through inheritance, two of his cousins became his business partners with him. But both refused to refer to Lebaudi by his official Saharan title, so he refused to accept payment from them. So the cousins dragged him into court, but Lebaudi refused to send a lawyer or appear himself simply because his summons did not address him as, quote, Emperor of the Sahara. The judge ruled against him, and he lost $200,000, or $5.6 million today, in 1904 profits from his sugar empire. And then for the next 12 months, there'd barely be a mention of Jacques Lubadi in the press. He just seemed to have vanished. In January 1907, newspapers around the world began to speculate as to what had happened to him. Well, he resurfaced on July 18, 1907, after he was spotted by a reporter in a very unlikely place. He was at a hotel in New York City. Lebaudi established a postal box there, number 1655, and it would be the only mailing address that he'd use for the remainder of his life. While he was in New York, Lebaudi led a fairly quiet life. But having become quite litigious at this point, there'd be an occasional mention in the papers about a lawsuit that he filed, but it appeared that his crazy nation-building antics seemed to become a thing of the past. 
On May 26, 1913, he purchased Phoenix Lodge. It was a 50-acre rundown estate in Westbury, Long Island, and he shared it with his wife Marguerite and their 8-year-old daughter Jacqueline. Nicknamed the House of 50 Rooms, Labouty did very little to maintain it. But two years later, Labouty's action would once again make headlines. That's because Labouty had blocked off an access road to a neighbor's property and Nassau County Sheriff Stephen Pettit was contacted. Pettit assigned some of his men to guard the road, and on August 17, 1915, the deputies heard horses trampling through the woods. The New York Times described what happened next. From out of the leafy covert of the underbrush appeared a horse bearing a commanding figure whose Palm Beach suit, topped by a green ribbon Panama hat, was weighted down with medals of all kinds till he looked like a German general. He carried a tin horn in one hand. Well, clearly that commanding figure was Labaudi, and he stated, quote, I am the Emperor of the Saharas. Surrender! Then, suddenly, four additional men emerged on horseback from the woods. Each soldier wore a dark green uniform with a facing of pink string. It was later learned that the Emperor's army consisted of, and you're going to love this, his army consisted of four Western Union messenger boys that Labaudi had requested be sent to him by taxi from New York City. So the deputies contacted his sheriff, Pettit. Upon his arrival, Labaudi and his miniature army were situated on one side of a high rock wall while the mounted deputies were on the other. And suddenly Labaudi just took off with the sheriff in hot pursuit. Labaudi cleared a small ditch, but the sheriff did not. He was thrown into the muddy water, and then he hopped back on his horse and continued his chase of Labaudi. The sheriff was finally able to overtake Labaudi, and he brought him to a halt. That's when Labaudi blurted, quote, I surrender to the United States government. I am Jacques Labaudi, Emperor of the Sahara, and I give up to you. Mrs. Labaudi described to Sheriff Pettit how her husband had become increasingly irrational, which caused both her and her daughter Jacqueline to live in constant fear. Labaudi was committed to a sanitarium, but he escaped the next morning. Twenty-five deputies unsuccessfully searched the woods for Labaudi. It wasn't until the next day, during a lawn party being held in the hamlet of Hale's site, that guests were shocked to see a man on horse emerge from the woods. It was Labaudi who asked, quote, Have any of you any long-haired cattle in your stables? Well, Suffolk County Undersheriff Biggs was a guest at the party, and he immediately recognized Labaudi and contacted Sheriff Pettit. The emperor was soon returned to the sanitarium, but while doctors continued their mental evaluation, Labaudi's lawyer arranged for his release after his initial 10-day commitment had expired. Labaudi solely blamed one person for his troubles. That was his wife, Marguerite. He proceeded to lock his wife and daughter into one of the rooms at Phoenix Lodge, and he forbid any servant from bringing them food and water. When Labaudi did learn that a servant had assisted the two, he reportedly carried hundreds of buckets of water up the stairs, and he proceeded to flood the hallway surrounding the room that was occupied by his wife and daughter. On the evening of September 2, 1915, Labaudi mailed a letter to the New York Times which included the following notice, quote, Mr. Jacques Labaudi of Paris, France, calls the attention of the public to the following facts. 
A French woman of no social standing has been for some time attempting to pose as being wedded to him. She has the audacity to use the name of a respected family and is deceiving in every way possible tradesmen and other people. He is taking legal steps to have her enjoined. That very same day, Mrs. Lebowdy received a letter from her husband stating that he and four men would be arriving the next day to remove the contents of Phoenix Lodge. In response, the sheriff dispatched a deputy to prevent this from happening. In a September 5, 1915 interview with the Washington Post, Mrs. Lebowdy stated, quote, Recently I've been without sufficient food for my little daughter. There have been times when it was necessary for me to smuggle food into her room in order to provide her with sufficient nourishment. She added, Since my little girl was born in Geneva ten years ago, Mrs. Lebowdy has at many times been unkind to me. He wanted a son, that the boy might someday be a French soldier. He was greatly disappointed when our child was a girl. It was our only child. Which brings us full circle to July 3rd of 1917. That was the day that Labaudi pulled his boat into Oyster Bay Harbor, you know, with its residents thinking that he may have been a German spy. Well, after authorities determined his identity, they contacted Mrs. Labaudi and asked what she wanted them to do with her husband. She replied, quote, Heavens, I don't want him. He was here last night and broke up everything in the house. There was to be no peace in the Labaudi household. With each passing day, Labaudi's attacks on his wife seemed to worsen. He was determined to destroy her both mentally and financially. And every time he returned to that lodge, he would erupt in anger and destroy anything within sight. On several occasions, it became so violent that the sheriff needed to be contacted. And fearing that he would harm or kidnap Jacqueline, Mrs. Labaudi pulled her out of school. Mother and daughter spent years living in constant terror. On January 11, 1919, Labaudi arrived at Phoenix Lodge, assisted by a messenger boy named Mark Rosenfeld. Upon entering the home, Labaudi exploded in rage and began to spread charcoal across the floor, as if he intended to burn the building down. He violently flipped over furniture and he proceeded to toss sofa cushions and other possessions right out the windows. Fearing for his safety, Rosenfeld ran out of that place. Mrs. Labaudi, who had been ill in bed upstairs, heard the commotion and came downstairs with a revolver. She proceeded to shoot her husband five times, killing him instantly. He was 50 years old. Daughter Jacqueline immediately called Mrs. Labaudi's attorney and told him, quote, Come over to the house quick. Mama just shot Papa. Colonel Walter R. Jones ordered Mrs. Labaudi's arrest. She readily admitted to District Attorney Charles Week that she had murdered her husband. Quote, Yes, I shot him. He had been threatening my life for 15 years, and I couldn't stand it any longer. She was charged with murder and placed in a county jail cell. On January 21st, the grand jury cleared her of the charge, and she was released. Sadly, a new battle awaited Mrs. Labaudi. Her husband had left no will, which under normal circumstances would have defaulted his entire fortune to her. But there was one big problem. 
That is that the couple had married under the laws of the imaginary Saharan Empire, and it was not recognized by any country. In other words, the couple was never legally married, and therefore Mrs. Labaudi was not entitled to the bulk of her husband's estate. As a result, Labaudi's sister, that's Maria Therese Jean Labaudi Lefels, opted to take advantage of this technicality, and she filed papers to have Mrs. Labaudi removed as executor of her husband's estate. The petition argued, quote, Margaret A. Labaudi is not the widow, and Jacqueline Labaudi is not the daughter of Jacques Labaudi. The said Margaret Labaudi is addicted to the use of drugs and has been for years so addicted. And the use of said drugs has so impaired her health and mind that she is unfit to perform the duties of her office or act as administratrix. The United States recognized the Labaudi's common law marriage, and on December 16, 1922, Mrs. Labaudi was awarded $2,455,038.19, and Jacqueline was to receive $4,955,076.38. Adjusted for inflation, that's $37 million for mom and $75 million for the daughter. It was noted that due to a previous agreement, these awards would be split equally with Labaudi's sister in France, but she was still continuing on with her fight to discredit Mrs. Labaudi back in Paris. On March 8, 1927, the French courts disagreed with the U.S. ruling, and they concluded that neither Mrs. Labaudi's marriage or the paternity of her daughter had been proven. As a result, titles to all of Labaudi's French properties, which was the bulk of his estate, were awarded to his sister. Now, during that same year that the United States awarded them all the money before they lost it, the mother and daughter Labaudi married the father and son detective team of Henri and Roger Soudreau. Now, Henri would pass on a few years later, and Jacqueline would divorce the son Roger in 1930. In 1950, Mrs. Labaudi passed away in Paris at 77 years of age. Daughter Jacqueline would remarry and emigrate to the United States during World War II. She died at the American Hospital in Paris on December 21, 1974. She was 69 years old. Now, if you want to go hunting for Phoenix Lodge, don't bother. It no longer exists. You see, after falling into disrepair, Jacqueline allowed it to be sold for unpaid taxes in 1926. Located on the eastern side of what is now Eisenhower Park Red Golf Course, the mansion was torn down and replaced by a typical suburban Long Island housing development. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. When a cloud bursts and fresh clean rain falls on a grove of rich green pine, it's mmm so nice. Right. Now the one and only genuine Lysol brand disinfectant comes in a new pine scent. It disinfects, deodorizes, as nothing else does, kills disease germs on contact. In laboratory tests, Lysol's anti-germ action kept working for seven full days. A bottle costs as little as 29 cents, and it's so easy to use. Just add new pine-scented Lysol to your suds when you clean in bathroom, kitchen, nursery, sick room. Use pine-scented Lysol because Lysol deep cleans. 
Make your home... Pine, sweet, and Lysol clean. You can still get regular Lysol, too. That commercial for Lysol's from the November 30th, 1958 broadcast of the Radio Western Have Gun Will Travel. The show's lead character was Paladin. He was a hired gun who typically worked for people who he felt were wronged in some way. Now, what's most interesting about this show is that it first premiered on CBS television in 1957. The show proved to be so successful that the radio version was launched on November 23, 1958. That's about a year later. Now, keep in mind, this is a period of time when, you know, the golden age of radio was coming to an end, and the best shows were doing the reverse. They were going from radio to TV, not the other way around. So this is quite unusual. Now, as for Lysol, and this is very interesting, it was first introduced as a water-soluble disinfectant in 1889 by a guy named Gustav Robbenstroch. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right. Anyway, Gustav Robbenstroch. And he introduced it to help end a cholera epidemic in Germany. Now, we're so used to Lysol coming in a spray can that many have forgotten that for most of its history, it was sold in a bottle that you diluted with water before use. In fact, I remember when I was a kid, it was like that. Now, during that same year, a guy named Frederick Fink, who was a partner in a New York-based wholesale druggist company called Lennon Fink, he became intrigued by the product while attending the Paris Exposition, and he signed an agreement to import Lysol into the United States. Now, initially, they only sold Lysol to physicians. You couldn't just go into a store and buy it. Now, Lysol proved to be a big winner for Lennon Fink, but not everything went as smoothly as they had planned. You see, in 1911, it was revealed that the most common means of suicide in both Australia and New York was by drinking Lysol. That's definitely not the kind of publicity that any company wants. But it was the 1918 pandemic that made Lysol a household name. And that's because Lennon Fink advertised Lysol as an effective means of fighting the influenza virus. Of course, as I'm recording this, the world has experienced another pandemic And it's interesting, at least to me, that Lysol disinfectant products cannot be found anywhere. Nobody can get their hands on it. Every single store is sold out, probably for months. Over the years, I've come across many print ads for Lysol that initially puzzled me, but a little research has helped clear it up. Now, since I know that I have younger listeners, I'm going to touch on this next bit very lightly. You can just use your imagination, you know, to fill in the blanks. Well, beginning in the 1920s, Lennon Fink began marketing Lysol as a feminine hygiene product, you know, as in a feminine douche. The product supposedly prevented odors and infections down there, and while the company never stated it outright at the time, Lysol became a very popular method to prevent pregnancy. In fact, it was the best-selling method of birth control in the United States during the Great Depression. A 1933 study of 507 women who used Lysol as a birth control determined that nearly half of them became pregnant, so it really wasn't very effective. And due to its low cost and ease of access, Lysol became a very popular method to end pregnancy. Sadly, the use of Lysol as a feminine hygiene product had its side effects, which ranged from irritation to death. Now, it wouldn't be until the 1960s when the idea of using Lysol as a feminine hygiene product would be forgotten. That just happened to coincide with the legalization of other methods that were once forbidden here in the United States. 
Lysol would remain with Lennon Fink until the entire company was sold to Sterling Drug in 1966. In 1994, record Benkheiser purchased Lennon Fink from Sterling Drug, where it remains today. Other brands in their portfolio that you may be familiar with are Airwick, Clearasil, Durex, and Gaviscon. So here's a quick question for you. Can you name the country that's currently the largest producer of wool in the world? Do you have any idea? Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more, we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In other news, here are three stories that time has forgotten. On March 7th of 1906, workmen remodeling a building that ran between 118 and 122 Elm Street in New York City found two small boxes that were covered with a thick layer of dust, you know, indicating they had been undisturbed for quite some time. Now, upon opening the boxes, it discovered the mummified bodies of three infants, an adult skull, and the shriveled hand of an adult. The date of 1868 was written on both boxes, which means they could have been there for nearly 40 years. No one knew who placed the human remains there or why they'd been stored, and the coroner found no indication of foul play. Next up, we have Muriel Nicholson. Her husband operated a New York City car dealership, and she filed applications with the State Motor Vehicle Bureau to register three different automobiles. Each time she used a different birth date, in fact, one said she was born on September 6, 1914. A second said she was born on September 26, 1915. And the last indicated a date of September 6, 1918. So you got 1914, 1915, and 1918. 
Well, as a result of her deception, she was charged with three counts of falsifying data. If found guilty, Mrs. Nicholson could have received a $500 fine, which is about $4,700 today. She could have received a $500 fine, a year in jail, or a combination of the two. Well, on May 12, 1954, Mrs. Nicholson arrived at the Court of Special Sessions dressed in a gray suit with a fur collar, a pearl necklace and earrings, a black ribbon in her blonde hair, and a short black veil. Now, I mention this for a reason. You'll see it comes up later in the story. After considering the facts in the case, the three judges unanimously dismissed the charges against Mrs. Nicholson. Quote, we're unwilling to believe that such penalties were intended for one who only exaggerated her age between three and four years, Justice Herman Hoffman stated. He added that, quote, The age element is only important as requiring proof from an applicant that she is not a minor. He continued, It may be observed in passing that the courts are not unmindful that age, as far as her sisters are concerned, is singularly relative and gallantry exacts an appreciation and understanding of Our Lady's age as one of the most gracious in men. Now, as for her real age, Mrs. Nicholson never revealed that detail in the courtroom. She did state late on the evening of the decision that she had been born in 1916. Remember how fancy she was dressed? Well, 11 days later, Mrs. Nicholson's fame would bring her misfortune. You see, shortly after midnight on May 23rd of 1954, two bandits brandishing pistols entered the lobby of her apartment building at 10 East 85th Street, and they demanded that the doorman take them up to her apartment. Well, upon entering her sixth-floor apartment, the thugs tied up Mr. and Mrs. Nicholson, the doorman, and the maid. The telephone, it was just, you know, ripped out of the wall, and they stole at least $50 in cash and jewelry. The Nicholsons were able to free themselves, and then they contacted the police. Finally, in December 1956, builder Frank Trani purchased two lots in the Earlington Crest subdivisions in Palatine, Illinois. The following summary proceeded to build two five-room brick bungalows that cost $19,000 each. That's about $171,000 each today. Then on August 17th of 1957, Roy and Martha Carlson were driving down the nearby Northwest Highway when they noticed the homes being built. On September 7th, they called the real estate office and notified them that Troyoni's homes, they were being built on lots that the Carlsons owned. It was quickly determined that Troyoni had built the homes on the wrong lots, and it really was an honest mistake. You see, at the time of purchase, the real estate agent just pointed to the lots and said they're Troyoni's. So Troyani immediately made the Carlsons three different offers. He offered to exchange lots with the Carlsons, he offered to purchase their two lots, he even offered to sell them the two homes that he had built. But as you can guess, they refused all three of those offers. Unable to resolve the situation, Troyani filed suit against the Carlsons on October 30th of 1957. He asked the court to decide what should be done with the two homes and to prevent the Carlsons from selling or disposing of the homes before the situation was settled. Keep in mind, these homes were being built on land that didn't belong to him. He didn't want them to turn around and sell the homes out from under him. 
Charles Worcester's attorney for the Carlsons explained to Superior Judge John A. Barbaro that, quote, it is their home site. All they want is the privilege to build their homes on their lots. They want no money. He added, my clients want the two buildings removed from their property and the ground left in its original condition so they can build their own home there. So Troini upped his offer to $6,000 for the two lots, but again the Carlsons refused. When the judge suggested that the Carlsons accept $8,000 for the two lots, attorney Wooster told his clients that he'd pull out of the case if they didn't accept the offer. Well, they finally agreed to the settlement. Mrs. Carlson said, quote, Our plans are all gone away. I guess it's a deal. So early in the podcast, it asked you which country is currently the largest producer of wool. So what was your guess? Well, the answer is Australia. Believe it or not, they produce 25% of the world's wool. This is followed by China in second place with 18%. The United States comes in a close third at 17%. And New Zealand is in fourth place. That's the fourth largest producer at 11%. Now, I just want to give a quick shout out to Ian, who's a longtime listener of this podcast, because he was kind enough to send me a reprint of a manual titled Instructions for American Servicemen in Australia in 1942. Now, as I was reading through it, I was surprised to learn that over one million Americans had been stationed there during World War II. Honestly, I never realized it was that many men. But then there was this little factoid about Australia having 120 million sheep and that it was the number one wool producer in the world at that time. So I wondered if it was still true, and of course it is. Now, a quick check of Wikipedia shows that Australia currently has the second most heads of sheep in the world at approximately 101.1 million. That's about 19 million less than they had during the war. In first place is China with 146.5 million heads of sheep. India's in third at 62.1 million, and that's followed by Iran at 51.7 million and Sudan with 46.2 million head of sheep. That same Wikipedia entry states that worldwide, approximately 540 million sheep are slaughtered annually for meat. Now here in the United States, most people consume beef, chicken, and pork, so there's really very little demand for lamb. As a result, there's only an estimated 6 million head of sheep here. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I do hope you enjoyed this two-part story on the Emperor of the Sahara. It's one of my favorites. Oddly, it's a story I'd set aside years ago, thinking if I ever wrote another book, this would be a great story for it. But in the end, I wrote it, and it was axed from the manuscript simply because it was too long. Well, the release of my new book, which is called The Flipside History, is getting close. It's still scheduled for mid-July release. I honestly don't remember the exact count, but I think it's going to have about 25, 26 longer stories and maybe about 15 or 16 of the shorter tidbits that I do in the podcast. Most of the stories in the book are brand new. They've never seen the light of day with me before. Now, if you're interested in purchasing a copy, it's available for pre-order with both Amazon and Barnes & Noble right now. Just a reminder to be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed. It's at uselessinfocast, at uselessinfocast. And that way you can be among the first to know when a new episode is released. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there and it should pop up. 
And if you go to my website, which is uselessinformation.org, you can find transcripts of this podcast and all the podcasts, along with images that accompany the stories. If you'd like to contact me for any reason, you can do it at steve at uselessinformation.org. That's steve at uselessinformation.org. You can subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Anyway, thanks for listening. Hope you tune in next time. Everybody stay safe and well, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.